podcast has bad words. <laughs> all right, y'all. I'm here with Bex and Joel Green, author of The Immunity Code. We're talking the immune system today. We're talking about gut health. We're talking about foods that we should or shouldn't eat and the order in which we may or may not want to eat them. <laughs> Joel, I've got so much to talk to you about, man. Um, I'm really grateful that you're here. Uh, a wealth of knowledge for sure. We were talking earlier during the minimal about you know, Rachel's question about what are the best foods. And I think we really dove into that. But I I do want to talk about some supplements that Bex has been experimenting with recently, uh, especially with with respect to sleep. Uh, sleep's a central role in our immune system. So let's talk a little bit about sleep, and I want to talk about niacin and, and zinc, and also mouth tape. Strangely, uh, maybe, maybe we can dive into all of those <laughs> and all its variants. <laughs> so, so how about um, um? Sleep. Sleep is obviously important. We're recognizing more and more. It's becoming almost a part of the culture now where it's no longer cool to aspire to only sleep three hours a night. Thank God. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was the thing in the corporate world for many, many years when I was in the corporate world, and you experienced this as well. It's like, well, yeah, I'll just do four hours a night, and that's how I'll win, basically. Yeah. But that's incredibly unhealthy. That's how you destroy yourself. Yeah, especially long term. And so let's talk about what that does to our immune system. Well, um, there's this emphasis in the last few years on fasting because fasting confers all these benefits on the body that we're told. Mm -hmm. And when you inventory what those benefits are, they all happen during sleep. They're just much stronger. Mm. And ironically, uh, fasting disrupts leptin levels and disrupts sleep uh, and meal patterns disrupt the body's clocking systems mm. so we're I found that if I do like a long a prolonged fast like three days or something it's I can't sleep at all that second or third night right yeah, yeah. and that's yeah. why the starvation right mm, yes and yeah and it's easy to prove like um, I, I use the analogy in the book um, there's this ongoing debate of like which parts of the body's clocking systems uh, win the day in terms of having the most control. And there's kind of a light and dark argument, light and dark cycles, but it's really not true. It's easy to prove. You just eat a gigantic 5,000 calorie meal at lunch during broad daylight and you'll go right to sleep. Okay. And <laughs> conversely, sure. try starving and you'll wake up in the middle of the night. Yeah. So, um, so sleep is when all of the body's um, life extending and youth preserving mechanisms go off. It's called the genetic rush hour and it's a window when we're sleeping, when all these big words happen, like HDAC inhibition and the sirtuin proteins and, you know, all these all these things, autophagy, pexophagy, all these things happen during that window. And when we disrupt that window... And that window's at a particular time, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's a particular time during the night. We are... So a part of the equation that um, I tried to really bring back to the forefront in my book was the idea that we're diurnal creatures and certain things have to happen at certain times. And you can do one thing at one time and get no effect, but you do it at another time and you get a massive effect. And that's a new thing in medicine. It's chronoimmunology. Mm -hmm. So there's no reason chronoimmunology can't apply to what we're doing in terms of foods and the way that, you know, our sleep cycles affect things. Mm -hmm. So by losing, the, the easiest way to kind of validate that concept is with shift workers. And you just see this, you know, huge plethora of information and data about shift workers and obesity and cancer and all these things. So, you know, the data is, is just, we don't, we, don't just, we don't just trip over it. You slam into it at 100 miles an hour going, oh my gosh, you should probably get some good sleep. It's a good idea to do that. Yeah. Um, and the net of it is that it's not just the duration of our sleep, but it's the quality of our sleep, particularly, particularly um, the production of 
a very specific protein called HIF-1 or hypoxia-inducible factor um, and the stabilization of that while we're sleeping. Mm. Um, and a, a case I make in the book is that um, most things are, are really neither good nor bad mm -hmm. in the body. They, they can be either depending on a lot of conditions. And HIF-1 is a protein your body makes when it's not getting enough oxygen, not getting enough air. And it can be very good in a lot of cases. It can be good uh, post-workout. It can be good you know, at certain times. But the stabilization of this protein in our cells uh, is disastrous mm. in most cases. It's a cancer promoter. In fact, when HIF-1 stabilizes, it creates the exact same biochemical uh, milieu that cancer has, exact same. Like when you examine it one-to-one, -one, you go, oh wow, there's Warburg metabolism, there's um, high uh, free radical output, um, there's, you know, there's all these things that you see in cancer and it's exactly the same here. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, um, hypoxia and cancer tend to go together. Mm -hmm. So restoring proper oxygenation, um, proper airflow during sleep is kind of like at the top of the list of things we have to do. Thus the mouth taping, thus, you know, all, uh, all these other- The breathe right strips. All that stuff, yeah. Now, um, Bex, you've been doing that, right? You've, you've been doing the, the breathe right strips, the mouth taping. Yeah, I've, I've flirted with it. I can't say I've been religious about when it. Is this flirtation gonna be a romance? <laughs> uh, I don't She's know. She's a mouth breather. I'm a total mouth breather. <laughs> and my whole family are, are mouth breathers. Um, so I come by it honestly, but, um, <laughs> yeah. So the, the nose tape thing, yeah. I did that for like a week or so. And I got to say my vanity took over. Cause like I could, I could feel it pulling on like the skin yeah. right next to my eyes yep. and like, I'm getting older. Mm -hmm. I don't want to like be stretching the skin by my eyes every night. Mm -hmm. So I stopped doing that. It's, it's a pain. Uh, there, there isn't a great invention yet. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's not just that, it's like the buildup of like the, the, the glue on the tape. Like, yeah. It's like a t with a putty knife and I'm scraping it off, <laughs> yeah, you know? So it's, yeah. yeah it's, now, let's talk about why, why the, the mouth tape is but, something that's important. Well, I was gonna go back, but like when I do wear the, the Breathe Right strip, like you can feel how much it opens your nasal passages, right? Mm -hmm. and that just alone feels really nice and it makes it easier to tape my mouth shut so that there's I, a particular I, kind of tape though you're not using duct tape no but you could <laughs> i mean sure. <laughs> yeah no literally we bought like mouth tape on amazon yeah so why is that important joel uh, well, there's some research that shows that we tend to oxygenate the brain a little better when we're breathing through the nose. Mm -hmm. And so when you look at age and onset of Alzheimer's and, you know, cognitive decline, uh, getting the brain oxygenated during sleep is kind of like at the top of the list in terms of like helping to prevent a lot of things from, yeah. from going down. So it's really important. What happens as we age is that the structure of the face begins to collapse and then the airway collapses and, and all these things start shrinking in. So the airflow getting into the body is less. Mm. And there's a lot of different ways that we can address this, um, a lot of different modalities. Um, some of them some of them you have to go see like a dentist or you have to go see a practitioner for. But the cheap and easy, you know, kind of available off the shelf ones, uh, I put in the book as the Seattle Protocol. Right. Um, those are things that anybody can do. And I'll tell you like my own personal experience, when I, when I do the, 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 the whole routine, mm -hmm. um, I have no inflammatory issues when I wake up, but mm -hmm. if I don't do it and I've been working out, I'm inflamed everywhere. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can feel it like literally the next day. So mm -hmm. it, it, it absolutely makes a percent difference. Yeah, I've, see, I've noticed it makes yeah. a difference. It absolutely does. Um, one of the things that struck me about that protocol in particular was that it kind of echoed what I heard from 
um, a book. James Nestor. Yes, thank you. Um, well, breathe so, funny or story. breath. Breath. <laughs> we, James, James and I were in the room together in 2017 mm. when that picture in my book of the guy with the facial structure. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Uh That was a uh, that was a secret thing at Quest Nutrition where Ron Penna invited um, a bunch of like uh, thinkers into yeah. the room. And I met James there, and we were both writing our books at the same time. And and uh, there was some really great info in that meeting that you know we took away from it. Um, and so it was just kind of an interesting confluence. But um, that's also a great book. Yeah. 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 Nice. Let's talk about what else will will help our immune system here. One thing that was fascinating um, that I always had this weird question. I think I've I've, I've realized it recently. The answer to it, but. Um, Ryan and I have gone out on a bunch of book tours over the last 10 years. We've done nine tours over 10 years. We've hugged over 60,000 people. And I've never once gotten sick from that. And um, it almost feels like we were, I don't know, microdosing our immune system, yes. so, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Is there any truth to that? 100%. Now, 100%. the problem is, though, as soon as... <laughs> We had a kid. I started getting very sick with the kid, mm-hmm. um, and so like I can hug sixty thousand adults, but then one child brings me to my knees with you know, hand, foot, and mouth disease and everything else. Um, why is that? I mean, obviously the, the child's immune system, Ella, her her immune system is just being built, and she's uh, as kids you're more prone to to getting sick. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, I'm wondering why. Uh, Maybe it's it's I'm getting macro doses it's of a hers. Dose, right? Yeah, it's a dose thing. It is she dose dependent. Straight right? into your face. Into my mouth before. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're, you're meeting adults, and you know, you're you're giving the quick hug and all that. It, and the other thing is, those adults themselves have built up their immune systems. So sure. you know, but in the case of a child where their immune system is more susceptible than, and you're around it constantly, then it's just exposure, mm-hmm. an exposure issue. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, well, let's talk about testing. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not the biggest fan of of poop testing and 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 it seems to me that some tests are appropriate but many of them are either overkill or just totally inappropriate again i think i think that uh you're talking about like a poop testing for the microbiome yeah yeah yeah. i mean uh, what was the one that went out of business the feds rated them recently what was their name uh yeah you biome oh you biome went out of business yeah they got raided by the feds they were doing some weird insurance stuff i believe allegedly Uh, i've had my head too far down the rabbit hole i didn't know that uh well so um i'm not i'm not anti-testing i just think that um Again, I think that belongs in the hands of like a practitioner mm-hmm. because there are data points you can extract from that that I think would be meaningful to a practitioner who could who could you know basically give you a course of action. Mm-hmm. But I think in the hands of the average person um, taking a look at like you you know there, there's there's some inherent flaws I believe in in the whole idea with it. One is that but you're getting a complete picture of the biome from your poop. You're getting somewhat of a snapshot of the fecal biome. Mm-hmm. Um, you're probably not getting the luminal biome in the intestines. Right. You're probably not getting the mucosal envi- biome. Um, and then looking at the actual like reporting that you get back, you're not really getting the the types of data that um, are meaningful that like you know well we see here from this that you have um, x amount of bifidobacteria these strains blah, blah, blah and then you know that type of stuff um, but the biggest reason is that the gut biome is so so rapidly modifiable mm-hmm. through yeah. substrates and inputs and it, in this, in essence it's it's a little bit like yesterday's weather like by the time you get the report back it's you know and it's very easy to prove if you want to prove this to yourself. Um, go eat something with salmonella on it. 
okay just it, it takes about three hours your whole gut is like in a different state and sure. and it's absolutely true you can prove it with junk food like um if you want to prove how fast the gut can be recolonized uh, just go eat a ton of junk food and then watch your gas yeah. the smell of your poop after about a day it's just like nauseous okay and well, that's it's actually, true in the reverse one of the takeaways that i got is like it what your current sort of diversity is maybe not be as important as what it could be a week from now? Yeah, you can rapidly tune the gut. Um, in fact, there's a really good science paper on this. Uh, I, I think it's one of the seminal papers published in the last 10 years. And um, the title was um, Human Gut Communities Are Rapidly Modifiable by Cruciferous Vegetables, published in 2009. Mm. And, um, you know, it was a super interesting study. What it was able to kind of uh, lay to under the aegis of empiricism is rapidity mm. with respect to the gut biome that inputs could rapidly, rapidly shift the gut biome. And that is um, something that I put in the book as a power that you can test. And I've got a little hack in there with grapefruit and bananas. And um, since the book come out, has come out- um, the Green bananas, right? Semi-green, yeah, semi-green, semi-green. Yeah. The, the, the greenness uh, is, is, a, is a control point that you wanna start very slow on. Uh -huh. uh, if you have a really adapted gut, you can handle it. Uh, but if, if not that adapted, then you wanna start more on the yellow side. Uh -huh. But I've had a lot of people do that since the book came out and, and they're like, oh my gosh, my energy shot through the roof. And I'm like, mm, let's be vitamin production. You, And where that came out of was I was doing these corporate wellness engagements uh, uh -huh. back in 2012, 13. And we were doing them with cities and we would get like thousands of people doing these protocols like all at once. And mm -hmm. we started getting this live feedback like, hey, I can't go to sleep. What's going on? And, you know, I was terrified. I was like, oh, what are we doing? I don't know. <laughs> and it turned out, oh, it's B vitamin production. They're spinning up B vitamin production during the day, and then they can't sleep at night. Yeah. yeah. And that's yeah. because of the bifidobacteria? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So so what's fascinating <clears throat> about that is, um, you know, we, we've had people from all walks of life on here, like Rich Roll. I'm not sure if you know him. He has a great podcast. He's a, a vegan athlete. Amazing. Uh, we've had Paul Saladino on here, the carnivore doctor, and... and we actually had the two of them on here together. Ooh. And what was fascinating is, while their diets certainly don't overlap, the, a lot of their sort of ideas and beliefs overlap to a great extent. Like avoid factory farming, avoid pesticides, you know, all of these things. There's, there's a whole lot of overlap, especially considering that the food they eat is literally the opposite. Yeah. Um, I think a big piece of their stuff is also lifestyle, right? Like they both talk a ton about sleep, they are outside all the time, right? They're grounding. They're do, they're doing a lot. Rich sleeps outside, yeah, right? Like, yeah. I think I think while their diet stuff, there is some you know overlap in beliefs. I think a lot more of the overlap is in the lifestyle stuff. Agreed. Yeah. I, I do want to talk about some of those diets though, because <laughs> yeah. the uh, there are different diets. There's paleo and carnivore and keto and vegan and vegetarian and. Blah, and then, of course, like diet fads as well, you know, that, mm. uh, some of which uh, mimic you know, paleo or something similar. Um, I would like to talk about what some of these uh, get right and what they get mm. wrong. Sure. So I know like a, a vegan diet gets a lot of things right. Sure. So let's talk about that. Yeah. And then what, what, what is it missing? Well, <clears throat> um, high level, what they, they all have one thing in common, all of them they are all advocating imbalances as the way to health. Mm. And, and so one says, well, no, you got to imbalance plants. That's the answer. Or the other says, no, you got to imbalance meats. That's the answer. You know, the other says, no, imbalance fats. That's the answer. Okay, so they all share that in common. Mm. And the posit that I throw in the book is that, hmm, let me ask you a question. Um, <clears throat> if every disease known contains the word imbalance on it, in it, 
under the guise of homeostasis or lack of homeostasis. In other words, every disease you can think of, basically when you read the cause, it says, well, there's an imbalance and then fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. The question you have to ask yourself, um, will sustained imbalances produce health or will they produce disease? What's yeah. the answer? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's whether you agree with me or not, that's not, what's important is that you think about that question mm -hmm. because um, what I'll throw out to you is that a sustained imbalance of anything long, long enough will produce disease, even healthy things. Okay, wow. and it's super easy to prove short term. You can prove it with all kinds of things. I, I give the analogy in the book of a woman who went on a juice fast. Uh, and she imbalanced juices for three weeks, and then um, basically like had a brain aneurysm, and you know, like, mm. and it, it, she imbalanced um, the aldosterone system in her body, fluid imbalance, and you know, nearly killed herself. Actually, she did die. Um, and so, when you look at each of these different quote unquote dietologies, <clears throat> what you see is this emphasis on. <clears throat> they're all saying the same thing. They're all saying these are the foods you don't eat mm -hmm. because these are flawed. And then these are the foods you should eat because they have superpowers. Okay. Right. So vegan doctors <clears throat> say you don't eat meat because of X, Y, and Z. They'll mm -hmm. say it's inflammatory right. or they'll say they, these certain things, right? right? And there's some truth to what they're saying yes. about why you shouldn't eat those things. Right. And then you know, someone on the other extreme, right. virtually no one eats a actual carnivore diet, right. but like someone like Dr. Paul Saladino, who seems to know what he's doing, he would say that well, the anti-nutrients right. in in the right. um, in, in vegetables are what's bad for us. Yeah. And what you're saying is, well, in, there's certain truth to that, but that's not the whole story. No. Uh, so they're all right, and they're all um, excluding kind of a bigger conversation. Yes. So yes, absolutely true. Um, there are there are things in plants that, when imbalanced, can provoke what you would call disease states, absolutely true. There are things in meats that when imbalanced can provoke things like cancer, absolutely true. There are things in fats that when you imbalance them can do things like blow the gut out, damage the mitochondria, all true. Um, but what all of them are sort of leaving out of the picture <clears throat> is that the highest truth of health is mechanistically uh, balance itself as a concept is health. Mm -hmm. And that when inputs in the body are balanced, uh, you will find health at the end of that trail, no matter how long you do it. <clears throat> there is a power that that I have personally witnessed, and it's just my witness. It's it, I'm just speaking to that. Mm -hmm. I have personally witnessed um, this superpower to a wide variety of of superfoods in the diet. When 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 you're getting in the diet, salmon, uh, asparagus, garbanzos, grass-fed beef, raspberries, blackberries, um, uh, fennel. You know, and you see these things in balance. I've seen things not possible with drugs happen. I've seen, I use the story of, uh, we had a Dr. Phil storyline. Girl goes on the Dr. Phil show. Um, 322 pounds, uh, 22 meds. She's on all at once. Wow. I mean, everything you can think of, statins, you know, blood thin, everything. Um, and can't exercise, just food. So under the aegis of what I'm talking about at month four, two separate blood tests confirmed 100% normal blood work went off all the meds. There's no drug that can do that. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So what you see is, um, <clears throat> what you see in this era is this idea that we've all bought into. Like, if you're a vegan, no, a vegan diets are the way to health, and there's data that shows vegans live longer and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, it's very, very true. But then there's there's liabilities. Like, hey, you can show that there's issues with the brain long term. There's you know imbalances, all these kind of things. Um, and you can say that for every single modality that you're talking about. Yeah. The one thing you can't say that for is a balanced healthy diet. I don't know personally of anything disease-wise that comes from a balanced healthy diet long-term. Um, <clears throat> How you define a balanced healthy diet is different from when we came up with, with the food pyramid when we were kids and we were seeing that. Right. 
they, they promoted that as something as balanced, but it was actually promoting imbalance as well. Yeah. Um, so um, a, a balanced, healthy diet recognizes foundationally structure function. Okay. The gut's a good place to begin to explain this. So when you really look at the structure function of the gut, what you'll walk away with is that, oh my gosh, you actually really do need animal foods in the gut and you really do need plants. You need yeah. both. And yeah. let me give some examples. Yeah. Um, in the upper gut, the intestines, you absolutely have to have glutamine and aminos in there. Um, the reason, immunity. You look at secretory IgA, it mostly exists in the sloshy lumen, the, the, you know, the middle part of the upper gut, the intestines. Mm -hmm. You get glutamine in the diet, what it does is it pushes secretory IgA towards the walls Okay, and when that happens, it pushes um, things in the gut, antigens, towards the walls where they can get pulled into M cells from pyre patches, put into dendritic cells, presented to T cells, baked up, and then we come up with a solution for that. Okay, and you look at the effects of aminos in the gut. Um, you have to have things like arginine, glutamine, glycine. You need these in the gut, and the best sources are animal products. But then when you get down to the colon, and you really run through the structure function like we did earlier of like, if you're making short chain fatty acids from protein or carbs, wow, you really are best off making them from plant sources, mm -hmm. like all in, because you're getting antioxidants plus the right ratios of short chain fatty acids. So you, when you look at the structure function, it's gonna bring you to balance. Mm -hmm. It will show you that, wow, you need both in the diet. And then from there, it's just a question, we're in this new and wonderful era where we understand more about the specific effects of certain foods than ever before. Like we, we can look at things like garbanzos and go, wow, these things sensitize insulin. This is fantastic. If we use these at this time in this sequence, what we see is at later meals, insulin works better. Yeah. And then we look at animal foods. We look at like, wow, if we combined garbanzos with an egg, so you have an egg here, that stimulates the incretin proteins, glucose, insulotropic, polypeptide, uh, glucogen-like peptide, and that makes insulin work better. Mm. So if we combine these two in this way, we get a better effect. So we're in this brand new era that destroys yeah. the old era, where we can now begin to come into like all this learning, all these fantastic things that are possible with foods, things like preload meals, things like meal-to-meal -meal sequencing. And we have sort of this inventory at our disposal. Um, when you look at just meat alone in the gut, we're going to ferment cancer, cancerous carb compounds. You add a little bit of fiber to that, mm -hmm. shifts the whole thing. It changes the pH in the gut. pH drops below seven. Um, you don't get the fermentation mm -hmm. of the nitrosal compounds. And so you begin to see structure function leads us to balance. And when you add in the fact that foods are highly functional and some foods are super, you have this whole new set of possibilities now that we're just stepping into. Mm -hmm. And it's endlessly fascinating. Mm -hmm. We had a bunch of questions about... Mm -hmm. IBS about, and I, I'm going to put all these together because I think they'll move us in a particular direction. IBS, uh, Crohn's, uh, so IBD, mm -hmm. uh, irritable bowel disease, um, colitis, but then also like other autoimmune issues like eczema, rheumatoid arthritis, and these seem to be a function of a dysfunctional gut in many ways. Mm -hmm. And so I'd like to talk, talk to you a little bit about my own you know, health over the last few years. There was a period of time where a really shitty dermatologist prescribed Bactrim to me for 13 years. Mm. So I was on a, a antibiotic basically for 13 years. You can imagine what that does to yeah. napalm the gut yeah. for over a decade. Wow. And uh, since then, you know, I've developed, I have like a hundred plus ulcers in my uh, duodenum. Yeah. So it's, I mean, it looks like Swiss cheese in there. Yeah. Uh, of course, 
as you mentioned, I, I went to uh, a more restrictive, radically restrictive area. I would go to like autoimmune paleo and eventually like any fiber. If I ate a potato, I felt like my ankles were broken. Yep. And, and so it, it's an autoimmune trigger there, right? And so order of operations is key here because yeah. I can't put any, virtually any fiber in my gut right now right. without without just being in extreme pain. Right. Um, and so when I'm talking to these different people who are calling in or, or they're texting in questions to us, um, it seems to me a lot of us are, are struggling with, with these autoimmune or seemingly autoimmune mm-hmm. issues. Mm-hmm. We've done a lot of damage to yeah. our guts. Mm-hmm. Where does someone like me who's in an extreme scenario or someone else who just has eczema and they figured out that restricting does really help. Me, if I only eat meat, mm-hmm. it covers up the symptoms. For sure. But it doesn't fix my gut. Right, right. Let's talk about that. Yeah, so um, in the case of inflammatory bowel-related issues where the, the, the lining of the gut is inflamed and, and all these sort of levers are pushed and pulled and uh, butyrate uh, transport is impaired, you cannot start with fiber. Um, you have to start, we have to kind of come back to the beginning. What I would offer, and by the way, uh, disclaimer, no, nothing here is medical advice. Please see your practitioner. <laughs> but Amen. <laughs> yeah. uh, where we have to start is where immunity began in the gut. And a really key understanding is that you have to microdose your way back to health, okay? Um, so you begin with very small amounts of things that are, that are therapeutic. And so I would begin with very small amounts of the HMOs, uh, very small amounts of the red phenols, and lots of aminos, uh, particularly glycine and glutamine. Um, glycine has this incredibly healing sort of factor on the gut. It's very healing on the gut. It helps with fat loss too. Um, so glycine and glutamine, you would get that from where? We get glycine from like Jello. Jello, right? like a lot of Jello. Yeah. Like, like, like I eat a lot of Jello. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm also a big believer in, um, you know, we don't want to make biohacking this rich man's sport. Yeah. And it kind of is. Um, I'm a big believer in like affordable biohacking. So yes. a lot yeah. of what I do yeah. is off the shelf stuff that people, you know, poo a lot because it's like, well, it's got that and it's got this. And it's like, yeah, but it's a buck 99. Yeah. <laughs> We've been doing jello for the last month and a half or so. Yeah. In the evening, I've been doing like tart cherry mm-hmm. jello. Like, you find your poop easier. I, yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, trans- I attributed it to all of the things that we, we, we've been doing. It's but. transformative on poop. It's like, if you're constipated, you get a bunch of jello in the evening and things start to, things flow. Mm. But you need, um, basically, you need glutamine, you need arginine, you need tryptophan, you need glycine. Those are things, and you need them at night where you can get them in the gut. And while you're sleeping, the body's repair mechanisms have those resources available to And what work. foods do you get those from? You're not talking about supplementation necessarily. <clears throat> uh, yeah, kind of. Okay. You kind of need them at, at that point, you know, when, when everything is sort of not working. Um, you arginine can't, would come from meat, though, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, you okay. can get arginine definitely from meat. Um, and that's that's why when you see people that have had gut issues, they go on a carnivore diet and they notice this sort of amelioration of symptoms. It's because you're addressing part of the equation. Yeah, you've begun to address part of it, but it's not going to get you home. Oh, my inflammation went way. I mean, I didn't. In fact, it went so down. I didn't even realize how inflamed I was previous to that, because all of a sudden, when I removed all fiber and carbs from my diet, basically, when I tried that for a period of time, um, it 
the it, it seemed amazing at the time. It will, yeah. But but that that was not the solution. Well, again, it comes to order of operations. So what you're going to get, and this is so critical, like uh, you know, in the audience, you have to get this that um you have to stop looking at a result as definitive. You have to put a map in place on an x y axis and go, okay, so initially I'm getting this. That's fantastic. But what you're going to see in most cases, um, in most cases, this pattern where you you start here and it does this. Mm-hmm. Um, those are things that are not going to work long time. If you just listen to this, this is like an upside down bell curve. Right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's like an XY graph. So you're going to see, um, I'll turn this around okay. on the XY axis. What you're going to see is that in initial, you see lots and lots of benefits, but then long term, you see that kind of spin down. Then you see negatives. It's okay. like an inverted sine wave. Mm-hmm. Conversely, a lot of things that are negatives in the beginning actually become positives over the long term. Mm-hmm. So you'll see that with microdosing very small types of fiber. Like initially, there's symptoms are high, benefits are low. But as you begin to baby step your way up, um, symptoms go low, benefits go high. Mm-hmm. So order of operations is so important here because <clears throat> um, when, when the gut lining's not working the way it's supposed to, um, absolutely needs animal products, needs aminos. But again, that's not going to get you home. Right. Um, you need also to kind of replicate the way the gut started. So the HMOs are a good way to do that because you're mimicking mother's breast milk and right. you're getting in very specific, very specific immune-centric uh, mechanisms like the HMOs in the diet that helped to build immunity in the gut in the first place. And then things like phenols, which um, are that critical substrate for the right bacteria. But the trick is you can't have too much. If you're getting... When I say symptoms, I mean bloating, farty, flatulence. Okay, mm-hmm. if you're getting that, you're doing too much. Okay. Okay. So sometimes, l- sometimes, literally, you need to start with like a whatever you could fit between your thumb and your finger. Uh-huh. That's how much you have to start with. But if you just think about it for a second, <clears throat> that's everything. Mm-hmm. Like right. if you take a really obese person and you say, "Hey, start working out," they're not going to run a marathon. Yeah. What and they- the problem is when you do you you if you have an obese I used to be morbidly obese I was yeah I know right really? uh, yeah yeah, yeah. I would two hundred and forty pounds it was yeah yeah wow. thank you um, uh, but I I if you would have told me to go out and run five miles it would have destroyed me right and this is the equivalent yes if it's like well if you eat a whole you know tree of of apples right you're gonna have a serious Issues. problem right? right in fact if i eat a apple i'm yeah although done you for. handled that was what was interesting because yes. we did start him on the on the apple peel protocol mm-hmm. and you handled it okay i was shocked they didn't i they, thought they, didn't they were going at all. But i eat four yeah. strawberries and it destroys it destroys me so like it's weird which you know which thing yeah. can potentially destroy yeah. he you, right? The, he could do four apple peels and not have gas and bloating and mm-hmm. stuff. That's a good sign. But yeah. we, but you did end up having like what seemed like a reoccurrence of your GI pain. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It was bad last week. Yeah. Um, let's move beyond me though. Let, let's talk about. <laughs> oh, I, I have a question. Okay. Where does orange juice fit into that? Because it seems like that yeah. might be the mm-hmm. the piece in there that can soothe and. Mm-hmm. It definitely didn't soothe, soothe me. It did the opposite. It it and maybe it's just because I have so many ulcers in my in my duodenum. Like it's it was yeah. painful actually. Yeah, orange juice is a mid cycle insertion. Like it's not an upfront okay. thing. Okay. Um, if you try orange juice too soon in kind of the restoration process, you're going to have issues. But once once you've gotten in the place where you've begun to kickstart, uh, kind of. When you've begun to kickstart butyrate production back in the gut and you're getting out of glucose oxidation, meaning that you can, you're finding you can handle little bits of fibers, okay? Then at that point, um, 
a little bit of orange juice combined with fasting um, helps. It, it, so the, the trick is when you do it and how much, those matter a lot. Mm-hmm. So you don't wanna, you don't wanna start, like if you, were, you came to me and said, hey, I need help with my gut, um, we would eventually get to the orange juice maybe two months down the road, but not right. up front. Right. And then once you started on it, we'd start you with maybe a quarter cup and we'd do it after fasting. Um, and just very small amounts mm-hmm. that we would start you with. And what you would find with that is that um, if you did it with fasting, um, at the end of like maybe a very short-term fast, you would find um, you'd find a, kind of a healing effect from it. Mm-hmm. Okay, but if you did it too soon, you'd find the exact opposite. You'd mm-hmm. find a very painful effect from it. Right. Yeah. It's lemon juice on a wound, sort of, almost literally. Here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Wow. Yeah. Okay. Well, we, we've had several questions here about food intolerances. I'll just go with Tatiana's question here, and I think we can expand on it. She says, "I'm lactose intolerant, right. but I still eat dairy." Mm-hmm. <laughs> when i do i take lactate to help Mm -hmm. it doesn't always seem to work and i still have minor issues Mm -hmm. is this doing additional damage to my digestive system beyond the usual discomforts now joel you have fascinating theories about um we've been sold a bill of goods on sort of uh, dairy intolerance or gluten intolerance. Mm-hmm. Right now, there's the prevailing theory is like some people are gluten intolerant, mm-hmm. other people are dairy intolerant, mm-hmm. some people aren't. Mm-hmm. But that's not really the whole story, is it? No, it's not the whole story. And and like the argument with diets, there's truth there, uh, but it's not the whole story. So what you see with so first of all, the first thing to understand is that. Um, the, the old school thought is that, you know, when it comes to detoxification, the liver is kind of the big gun, you know, mm-hmm. but kind of a new way of thinking about it is that um, the gut bacteria and the liver are co-equals and that they're, they're uh. both the twin pedals on the bike. So half the body's uh, enzymatic power um, for detoxification and digestion is found in the collective genes of the gut biome. And that is modifiable. You mm-hmm. can't modify your liver, but you can modify the genome of the gut biome. Mm-hmm. And when we when we modify the genome of the gut biome, we see amazing things happen. And these are documented things in research. So we see people that um, have lactose intolerance that suddenly don't have it anymore. You see people with uh, quote unquote disease states that don't have those disease states anymore, with digestion issues, they don't have them anymore. And this gets us into kind of like a, a, a conflation of ideas that we've stepped into. And we've all sort of bought into this one dimensional way of interpreting things like, uh, you know, it's, is it the foods or is it the bugs in the gut? We're all like, what's foods? It's gotta be the foods. Is it? Because when you really dive down this hole, what you find is that more often than not, it's not the foods, it's the bugs in the gut. Mm-hmm. And when you change the bugs in the gut, suddenly you don't have issues with the foods. Right. I've personally seen this, it's happened to me. Um, I used to have horrible, horrible breakouts from dairy, couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. And now post-workout, I drink raw cow's milk. Wow. Straight, mm-hmm. doesn't bother me a bit. And it's because I learned how to tune my gut. I've done it with people. Uh, Mark Bell, um, after a contest last year, I put him on the HMOs and uh, a couple other things and it wiped his lactose intolerance out lifelong, just got rid of it, doesn't have it anymore. Um, you see it in the research. What you see is that people that had uh, gluten intolerances, they recolonize the gut, they don't have them anymore. Yeah. So there is this growing body of research and um, experiential anecdotal evidence that suggests strongly that it is possible to eliminate uh, intolerances and issues that we once had. Not entirely, however. Mm. So when you begin to parse that a little bit and you look at like, well, I've got a dairy intolerance. Well, can you expound upon that a little bit? Yeah, um, it's a casomorphin allergy. Oh, we're not going to fix that with the gut. Yeah, that's different. Right. Okay. That's that. You're stuck. Intolerances and allergies are different in that in that respect. Yeah. Right. right. So uh, you can you can have a lactose intolerance issue, and there's a there's a percentage of that we can fix through the gut. Mm-hmm. It's not a hundred percent. 
Okay. Yeah, what you're talking about is being able to tolerate better, right? Yes. That's the whole intolerance thing. So you could have someone like like Bex. I know, you know she's had a strong gut forever. She's been just this paragon of health. But I have noticed over the last, you know, what would you call it, decade maybe, that you've you've not been able to digest dairy or gluten as well as you could when you were 20. Yeah, I think what kind of happened was, you know, three or so years ago, um, I played around with keto for a while mm. right so okay. so historically i've yep. done a very balanced um especially you know in my in my 20s my mid to late 20s like i did a really balanced omnivore diet mm. whole foods based lots of you know resistant starches lots of salmon and a little bit of grass-fed beef and mm. stuff here and there but like it, it was very balanced mm -hmm. and then i think you know within the last three years i've played with that balance too much mm -hmm. basically and like i played around with keto for a while and that was fun and like you know i leaned up really well but all of a sudden my sleep got tanked and yeah. i was like okay it's enough of that yeah. um and then since you've had your issues mm -hmm. like w we've played around a lot more with a lot of animal-based stuff mm -hmm. and i've i've moved away from the fibers and things like that that I that were really the the foundation of my diet for so long. Mm -hmm. And I do think that you know my my skin has suffered, my gut health has probably suffered as a consequence. Mm -hmm. Um and you know even my body fat percentage, like my body fat is higher than it used to be. Mm -hmm. Um and there're probably many reasons for that, but um yeah, I've been for the last month and a half or so coming back to that much more balanced state mm -hmm. and i feel it like that's probably the direction that i'll i'll take things long term is is refinding that balance that worked really well for me for a long time um, someone like bex she she can find that a lot easier because she's she's further along in the the order of operations here um and, and someone like her it seems to me like she's she's been wildly healthy she's played around with a few different things and had some negative effects from that mm -hmm. but it's quite possible that relatively rapidly mm -hmm. that could all turn around Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, your story is actually very common yeah. uh, nowadays. Um, what we've seen in the last five years is a lot of playing around with things. And the result of that playing around was this curve over time. So so people started playing around with keto, and they saw all these benefits. But then the longer they did it, they saw kind of the, the negatives. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. same for like carnivore, same for like just yeah, vegan diets, different types of things. And again, it's... The, the interesting and the missing piece of the equation is mechanistically breaking down what happened mm -hmm. because nobody's really explained that adequately. It's very explainable. Mm -hmm. And we, we talked about it. So with keto diets, what you see happening is that whole ketogenic pathway for butyrate production mm -hmm. where you're making short-chain fatty acids, but you're making different ratios of acetate and lesser amounts of butyrate and propionate. And then you're not making as your end product that phenols and antioxidants with that. What happens is over time, you're going to blow the gut out. Okay, because you're not repleting the the levels of antioxidants needed to keep the intermucosal lining where it should be, mm -hmm. and so uh, and there's even research on this, you know, and it's it's difficult to parse the research because, you know, some research papers use high fat diets and they they mean something very similar to a keto diet, and then other research papers say high fat diets and they mean the sad American diet, mm -hmm. but what seems to be the case that you can probably make a generalization for is that lots and lots of fat in the diet, small amounts of protein you're going to get a general grouping of outcomes, which is that it shifts the gut biome towards an obesogenic profile. So at the end of a keto diet, you'll lose weight in the beginning, but then at the end of that, what happens is the bacteria in your gut are essentially driving more food from energy harvest 
And so um, it's very similar gut biome to people with obesity. Yeah. And at the same time, the gut doesn't work the way it was. And then you have problems going back mm-hmm. to other foods. Yeah. So, but it's the slow reintroduction yes, then that will get you the there, point, right? Yeah, is, 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 it's just the speed at which you reintroduce things and kind of the dosing. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's answer some audience questions here. Becky has a question. Can the strength of one's immune system be measured? If so, how? And what are, she's asking for a top 10. Let's not necessarily say we have a top 10 list, but what are some daily habits a human can adopt to strengthen his or her immune system? So is there a way to, I mean, how would we measure the immune system? I guess we're looking at inflammation as one way to look at the immune system. Yeah. I mean, there's tons of measures. There's inflammatory measures, there's antibody measures, there's, you know, there's all kinds of things that we can measure for the immune system. So that's that's pretty read- readily quantified, I would ar- offer. And, and so, so what what tests do you ask your doctor for if you're if you're wanting to measure your immune your immune s- system functionality? Um, you want to look at like um, you want to look at things like secretory IgA or IgA. Um, you want to look at like very key inflammatory markers. You know, nothing too esoteric. Your CRP and um, you know, different measures like that is the first things that I would go for. These are all blood tests, by the way. Yeah, things okay. that you can look at. Yeah. And, and so, what are some daily habits uh, to answer Becky's question here that we can use that we can implement to improve our immune system in the long term? Yeah. Um, sleep and diet are kind of the top two, yeah. really. Uh, mm-hmm. So, diet on a daily basis. Um, there's a pattern that I put forth in the book, which is not meant to be a diet. It's meant to be a solution to a complex grouping of problems, which is the real world circumstance we all live in daily where you get interrupted, you get knocked off course. But then at the same time, we have this need to um, restore things while we sleep. And then we have this need to um, age better and all these things. And that that dietary pattern was my attempt at answering that question the best way that, to my mind, could possibly be done, which was to provide balance in the diet, but at the same time, um, give a nod to sequencing, uh, butyrate production while we sleep, repletion of NAD and very specific things through fasting, but not overly fasting, and then giving the body a break a few times a week from insulin production and activation of all the youth extending pathways like the sirtuins and AMPK. And so through the diet, we have this massive control switch over immunity um, and, and the things that govern immunity. And we can govern, we can govern the things that compromise immunity. So example is um, oxidative stress, redox stress from the foods we eat. One thing people have to realize is that it doesn't matter what you eat, um, it's oxidative by its very nature. So it's called um, oxidative metabolism. Mm-hmm. The idea that metabolism by its very nature is oxidative. Mm-hmm. There's a cost to eating. And once we understand what that cost is, we can sort of offset that cost by the way we sequence and time foods. So diet is huge, sleep is the other. Um, And then there's kind of a third grouping of things which really fall under replacing things that we've lost. Um, One of those example would be just contact with dirt. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, Like literally like, like if you garden, if your hands get in the soil, there's some really fascinating new research that shows just getting your hands dirty for about 10 minutes a day, um, what happens is you literally get bacterial transmission to the inner organs from the skin because mm-hmm. the skin's one of the body's biggest organs. Right. And so in the soil are tens of thousands of microorganisms, half of which we haven't even quantified yet. Our ancestors were merged with those. Yeah. Yep. And so by just literally antigen sampling and, and by um, taking in other strains of bacteria, 
we sort of merge with our environment. Mm -hmm. So you could offer that our ancestors probably had much more robust immune systems than we do because we're so hyper sanitized. In fact, there's some fascinating research that compares the same ethnic populations one living in Finland where everything's hyper sanitized and hyper clean and you know the dirt is removed yeah and <laughs> and then in Russia where you have some rural farmers and they're just they're in the dirt all the time uh-huh. and the the dirty farmers are way healthier right yeah. way healthier the Becks grew up on, on a farm uh-huh. in Minnesota and yeah. and I, I attribute a lot of her lifelong health to to that that I mean she she set herself up oh her family uh, set yeah. herself up for My yeah <laughs> and, and uh, uh, it's fascinating to me that there is this, you know, what we've done, especially recently in our current times, is, and I understand the 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 desire to be safe, but also we're so hyper sterile mm-hmm. that we're kind of missing the point. Very much so. Very much. Like um, there, there's such fascinating, interesting research on um, eating dirt and being dirty, mm-hmm. and the beneficial effects of that. Um, camping, <laughs> in fact, there's really good research on farm kids because they grow up in an, in an environment where essentially the microorganisms are nebulized in the air and they're breeding those in and it affects their immunity. They're healthier wow. because of that. Wow. So there's, there's this category of replacing back things that have been lost. It's the dirt, it's the air, it's the sun, it's all of these sort of like, you know, natural things that we that we've just subtracted by virtue of mechanization and industrialization and COVID and staying indoors. And those things have a massive impact on immunity. Massive. And they're easy to replace. Like literally just gardening ten minutes or putting your hands in garden soil is huge. Which is the opposite of what we're doing now. We are every place you turn there is a hand sanitizer and right. i've just heard horror stories of you know, people getting all warts on their hands and all that because you're disrupting people think of the the microbiome as it, though it's something in the gut we also have one on the skin right it's huge and it's it's uh, the the research on this is so compelling um so when you garden or you get your hands in the dirt and your hands are in the dirt for let's say 10-15 minutes mm-hmm. and you go and wash your hands off, you don't eliminate the bacteria. The bacteria persists and then it actually finds its way to your organs and it improves immune function. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 it, and you can go down the list. Um, yeah. Another example is just air. So we're in this, <clears throat> you gotta think about something. Like with COVID today, you have this, you have this, and this is just, it doesn't matter what your position on this is. It just, I, all I'm saying is if you're in the audience, think this one through a little bit. Um, most people today have issues with sleep apnea. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like you're not getting enough oxygen when you sleep. Okay. That's a cancer promoter. It's like right at the top of the list of cancer promoting. Then um, depending on what you do, you may be spending a good chunk of your day with a mask on. Yeah. Okay. And you're not getting exposed to the air. You're getting exposed to your own, your own breathing out, your own CO2. Um, so you're essentially mimicking sleep apnea. During, sli- during, the, during the day. Mm. Uh, there's a thing, um, I have a course where I talk about this. There's a thing called a reoxygenation injury. And I haven't heard this talked about anywhere in the news and I'm, I'm blown away by it. A reoxygenation injury happens when you go from not getting enough oxygen and then suddenly reoxygenate, okay? Huh. What happens is if you look at what happens inside the cell, the cell goes from a state of of uh, uh, stabilized HIF-1 to introducing combustion back in the cell, okay, through oxygenation. Yeah. And essentially inside the cell, it injures the cell. Mm. So you get this prevalence of inflammatory markers and um, uh, free radical production as a result of reoxygenating. So a good example of this would be you wake up in the morning and you're really sore. Yeah. A lot of that, and, and the first half of the day, you're super sore. 
a lot of that's a reoxygenation injury because you're not getting enough oxygen at night. You wake up, you stop your sleep apnea, and now you're getting this inflammatory storm in the body when you reoxygenate. Mm. So if you're constantly reoxygenating during the day after sustained periods of not having oxygen, you should think that one through. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, let's talk a bit about brain health and how it relates to to gut health. I'm I'm thinking about we have. Uh, Actually, we're recording this before the election, but it's going to come out after the election, so this will be fascinating. Oh my gosh! Uh, yeah, and so we, you know, this is obviously isn't a political show, but we have two people who are running for president, or were running for president at this point, who um, they had cognitive decline, uh, to be kind, right? One probably worse than the other, and I, and we we see this a lot as people age. Obviously, the cognitive decline of aging. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that's it seems to me that it's potentially preventable in many instances, at least. Um, but it probably starts with the gut, doesn't it? Uh, the gut has a lot, yes, but not totally. Okay. Um, there is a component um, related from the health of the gut, um, and you can you can sort of say this is a X percent you know contributor to cognitive decline, uh, but it's not everything. Um, it, it, cognitive decline is multifactorial. And you see a lot of different um, things that contribute to the buildup of amyloid plaques in the brain and, you know, um, the degradation of, of cognitive function. Um, it is much more amelioratable than probably we believe um, just along the way through different types of protocols. Um, there's, there's even simple things that are available now, like mushrooms mm-hmm. that have been shown to help, you know, with cognitive decline. So, um as much as we, as, you know, being a gut guy, as much as I would like to say it's all the gut, it's not. <laughs> right. No, but, but I, I have noticed that a lot of people, when they start to make those changes and they go with one of these sort of experimental diets, the elimination diets, uh, one thing that people often report, myself included, is more mental clarity, mm-hmm. less brain fog. Mm-hmm. So there seems to be some sort of correlation there, right? Mm-hmm. Can, can we talk about why, why that is? Why, why might the food that we eat cause us to have brain fog? Well, um, as we age, there's a there's a very good argument that Alzheimer's is the third form of diabetes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh wow. That really what it is is it's a problem of glucose transport in the brain, and the way the brain is using sugar is basically impaired. So, and, and think of it like you know what if what if you know you had like central obesity? What if you had that in the brain, mm-hmm. and the brain just didn't use sugar the way it was supposed to? Then what you would find is that when you shift inputs and substrates of things and then the brain begins burning ketones, it's like the lights go back on. Yeah. Like, hey, suddenly things are working. Well, it's because you've got um, a dual drive system that powers the car and the gas engine system's not working very well. Um, and then what you find is when you shift to the electric drive, things seem to go better, sure. okay? So that's, that's partially an answer for it. Um, the other answer has to do with, if the gut's not working properly and you're, you've got issues related to the absorption of nutrients and inflammatory markers, then the brain is sort of in this constantly inflamed state, what you'll see. Uh, You'll see uh, in particular issues with different aspects of the brain that can become inflamed. A good example is in the hypothalamus, there is a key area called the archaic nucleus, and there's these things called the goody-related proteins in there. When the hypothalamus gets inflamed in that area, um, then you'll see outcomes like um, dysregulation of eating patterns and you know you just can't stop eating and all that and it has to do with inflammation in the brain mm. specifically so those things can be affected by diet um, dramatically yeah. um, so it, it's a complex question the just can't stop eating thing is fascinating because 
quite often, going back to the gut there, uh, one of the reasons that we crave a particular type of food, a lot of it has to do with the bugs that are in the gut, right? 100%. Let's yeah. talk about that. Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, and so I, I get into this thing in the book that, um, you know, again, I hope I made the case for this. <laughs> and it's that um, your cravings are highly steerable. Mm-hmm. Like, like your cravings are not even you. You think it's you, but it's really them. They've hijacked you. And they want you to feed them what they want. 100%. So what you see a lot of is people who like, you know, like common common thing when you deal with dietetics is, is like, oh, I just have these carb cravings in the evening. I can't shut them off. And it's like, you don't have carb cravings in the evening. They do. And they want you to feed them. And they've hijacked your, your vagus nerve and your machinery. And they're getting you to feed them so when you go to sleep, they can multiply. Mm-hmm. The coolest thing about all this is how rapidly steerable all this is. Like I've seen out there, you know, like entire courses dedicated to crushing cravings and all trying to push them aside. There's 100% no need to do that. You can steer your cravings. You can make yourself crave whatever you want to crave just by building that bacteria up in the gut. And I've done it many, many times. I've done it with lots of people. So instead of craving cheesecake, you could crave fruits. 100%. I I just did that one. Um, I've got got a client who... um, uh, suddenly was just couldn't get enough fruit, couldn't get enough blackberries, couldn't get enough raspberries. And um, this, where this gets really interesting is when you look at pregnancy and transgenerational epigenetics. If you're eating the right things during pregnancy, you can make your kid be born craving those things. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Like you want, you want to eat like a lot of spinach right? and your kid will be born craving spinach. Um, and it's, it's super fascinating. Okay. Yeah, but, but in the more immediate now, um, you can, gosh, um, we did these engagements with hospitals a few years back, and we had all these medical professionals. We actually filmed these. Um, I think they're on our site. You can go see them. And the sites of uh, Veep Nutrition, VeepNutrition.com. Okay. Yeah, and you'll see their testimony of like, yeah, I, I don't crave those things anymore. I get nauseated when I eat them, and now I'm craving this. And it's all by just changing communities in the gut. In fact, what you'll see happen is once the gut communities have been changed, and then you eat that thing you used to crave, you'll get super nauseated typically. And the reason is that you're giving substrate to the old bad guys and you're getting a rebloom of them and you're getting a die off of some of the good guys and then the, the, in the die off their guts break open and they spill lipopolysaccharide into the gut and then that's causing nausea. It's the same thing that happens when a fever breaks. And so you get real nauseated, feel sick and like, I don't, I don't want that stuff anymore. Wow. And so yeah, you can completely steer cravings and you can do it fast, very fast. I, uh, I went on a vacation a little while back and um, I kept doing the red phenols on the vacation because I just, we were just, you know, literally eating on the road like 7-Eleven, you know, every 10 miles. Whatever. And um, what I found at the end of it was I came back just craving like fibers and, and, and just because I had so much red phenols mm. when I was, yeah. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Another question here. From Imneta, is my constipation and bloating related to my back pain? I mean, I suppose that's a po- that's possible. They really could be <laughs> two completely different things, right? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Best answer. Ever. Yeah, I mean, so let's talk a bit about constipation and bloating. That that is just uh, overdoing it, right? On on the the fibers. Uh, compared to what your gut is prepared to to handle. Yeah, so the thing about bloating is that um, the bloating actually is the solution in progress. Mm-hmm. And what happens typically is we just interpret it as a negative and short-circuit ourselves and go, I don't want to do that. Yeah. But it was actually the solution. So 
bloating by a better name is called fermentation. Mm. Okay. And so fermentation is the process by which the gut makes bacteria. Mm -hmm. Um, And for every 100 grams of carbs you ferment, you're going to make 30 grams of bacteria. It's just a question of what you're going to make. So if you take in a Snickers bar, you're going to ferment 30 grams of obesogenic bacteria. Um, And if you have like a really healthy substrate, you're going to get 30 grams of something health producing. Mm -hmm. So the, but the bloating process is, is where that's going on. Um, the problem is too much bloating. Too much, mm-hmm. yeah. So, and that's why, um, again, if we took an obese person and we said you're going to become a marathon runner, you know, uh, but we're going to do it incrementally over like a year, and we're going to start with making you just walk a hundred yards and back. They, uh, okay, I could do that, and they'd come back and like I feel pretty good, you know. But if you ask them to run the marathon, they'd get like you know the quarter mile into it and go, oh, this is terrible. I'm not doing this again. Right. Okay. So it's just this, it's just the micro dosing of the thing. Mm-hmm. And the, the, when you're, when you're getting too much bloating, too much cramping, basically you did too much. And if you would just start with very tiny amounts, uh, you'll find that you can step your way into it. Mm-hmm. would be the answer. Okay. So I have a question that sort of dovetails off that a little bit. It's like a lot of the challenges that I've heard, people doing mostly or exclusively plant-based diets Mm. say is that like they can do it for a while and then like they end up having gut issues at the end of it yeah um is that because the protein levels are too low and they're they're breaking down the the gut in that respect or is it you can injure the gut with too much fiber yeah yeah you can injure the gut by having too much fiber Again, um, anything, even good things, when imbalanced, can promote, you know, disease states. Right. So, yeah, that's the best answer to that. Okay. Yeah. And injury can happen faster if you're not getting enough yeah. uh, aminos. Yeah, and, and that's that's really it, is okay. that um, the, the gut needs both animals and plants. And the way I like to simplify it is to understand that the upper gut needs animal foods, the lower gut needs plant foods. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Joel, let's talk about exercise. We'll pivot over there. Exercise, training, longevity. There's a, a misconception, right, um, that generally more exercise is is better. But you think that's sort of a, a flawed point of view. And I think that, that's easy to see if we take it to its terminus. If you're exercising 24 hours a day, we all know that's a bad thing. But we are now bombarded with these images, with messages of you know fitness influencers but it's also their full-time job. And it's, yeah. even if it was healthy, it's not necessarily practical for us. Gosh, I could talk. I could, I could, we could do two hours on that <laughs> one. Yeah, yeah. It's everything that, everything that I'm doing came out of the, the end result of trying that stuff for about 30 years and getting to the end of the road with that. Yeah. And, you know, the, the high level, the thing to, to kind of understand is the concept of ecosystems. Mm-hmm. And that you have two distinct ecosystems and they're very different. You have the ecosystem that you inhabit when you are fit for a living. And that's fantastic. You know, that's a dream for many people. Wonderful. But then there's a very different ecosystem. That's the one most people live in. And the key is to understand most, and I mean like 95% of the solutions developed in this ecosystem will not translate into the, into the ecosystem most people live in. The number one reason is time constraints. um, Because when you're not getting paid to get fit, you have a whole different deck of cards. It's a different ball game for you. Okay. Um, I think you talk about zero time. Is yes. That a thing? Yes. And taking that farther, um, when you just inventory, and I'm sure you've probably seen this, when oh, you yeah. inventory what you really see over time with people, not short term, but long term, like going from 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 
what you really see is a bunch of times getting fit and then things get worse. Mm. That's what you really see. You see this happening over time. And I won't go into all the reasons why that's true. It's the fat loss paradox. It's a bunch of things. But the net of it is that one of the primary drivers is periodic time constraints where time goes to zero. And rather than trying to solve that problem with platitudes, like, oh, you just got to make time. Uh, no. <laughs> Give me that answer when you do that for a living, okay? Because you're not, you know, when, and having been in that world where you show up Monday morning and there's 15 voicemails blowing up and, you know, all hands on deck, it's an emergency, the servers went down, blah, 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 all that stuff. You know, today's a 15-hour day, there goes my workout plan. Um, in the real world, the ecosystem most people live in, over time, what we tend to see is periodic time constraints where time goes to zero. Mm -hmm. And so a solution designed for that ecosystem has to work when time goes to zero. Yeah. And that's a different set of physics. That's basically a set of physics where, okay, no meal prepping because there's zero time, no working out because there's zero time, mm -hmm. got to eat everything on the go because there's zero time. Um, and you know, we go down that list. But no working out doesn't mean you're not active. Right. And we, we need to right. make that distinction, yeah. right? Yes, right. Right. I'm just laying the conditions that, that you're gonna have to the gauntlet. Like like if you wanna win the prize, you gotta come up with a way that works when these conditions are present. Because you're not gonna always get this perfect set of physics. Okay. Sure. And that's the problem long term, is that nobody's really addressed that. We don't really have a, a, a set of physics that work or, or a set of maneuvers that work in that. And so making things work without time, without meal prep, while on the go, with social eating, with alcohol, with no time to work out, that's what's missing. Right. And that's what most people need. Yeah. So um, that's kind of where I've spent my time the last 15 years. And um, it, it sounds like when people hear it, they're like, yeah, you're, you're, you're full of it. And it's like, no, actually, this is essential. <laughs> it almost sounds like you're trying to sell a six-minute ab roller or something, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's like, well, you can get fit for life with just six minutes a day. Right. Uh, but it's, it's not that. What you're saying is we need to incorporate certain habits, activity-based habits, into our current time so that we're not carving out two and a half hours a day to get dressed and go to the gym and, and, and do all these other things. We need to find ways to insert it into the days when we have zero time to work out. Yeah, if we want a real solution for the ecosystem most people live in, number one is recognize that most people aren't doing bodybuilding. Okay. Right. Now, bodybuilding today doesn't take place mostly on the stage. It takes place on Instagram. Mm -hmm. Okay. Where you have like, you know, basically your whole schedule is around, you know, the way you look and photographing for that. And so what you're doing is you're setting sort of the standard that this is what you should aspire to. And that's not correct. Now, as, a, as an endeavor, as something to pursue, I think that's awesome. I think that, you know, there's room totally for like, you know, uh, perfecting the physique and t seeing how far we can take it and, you know, and a sport and all that. You just have to understand that that thing is what it is. That's not, that's not a solution for this ecosystem here. And it's also not health personified either. We, we, no. we, we look at it as though that person's a paragon of health, mm. but it's, it's often the opposite. Yeah. You know? Why is that? It's just because um, one is the prevalence of drugs. So we're able to attain sort of a, a look uh, with a whole bunch of time and a whole bunch of drugs that has no basis in reality. Sure. No basis in reality. HGH and testosterone, all steroids, the, all this stuff. An endless list, yeah. Filters. Right, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, we're, so, so we're sort of like, we're sort of taking this bodybuilding standard and saying, you know, you know this appearance-based sort of ethos, you know, is, is, kind of the, is kind of what you should aspire to. And... and has no basis in any world that most people live in. That's not the world most people live in. Mm -hmm. um, not only that, 
you know, I've been around a long time. When you track that and actually what happens, like over 30, 40 years, I know personally lots and lots of people who've done that. Mm-hmm. And you see very similar things. You see like, mm, you know, uh, this guy died. Um, this guy can't walk. Uh, this guy blew his you know, neck out, blah, blah, blah. Now, it's not to take anything away from that as an endeavor. If that's your thing. You should go do it and enjoy it and find a way to make a living at it. Great, good for you. But that's just not the reality most people can live in. So you have to get out of this, you're doing bodybuilding ethos and we need a new paradigm. And the new paradigm, that the one that I put forth in the book is that a young body is not the same thing. Uh, They're very different measures, like very different measures. Like um, young bodies can do things old bodies can't. And you can look incredible and not be able to do the things that a young body can do. Like, like I use the example of sprinting because it's the one exercise that's most tied to a young body. Like, if just let's get up and go sprint right now. Yeah. You know, you'll find a lot of people that look really fit that would just blow their body up doing that. Um, so the, the pursuit of keeping the body young is a different way of thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And then that pursuit brought into the real circumstances most people live in, which is mm, zero time, zero this, zero that, and now we need a solution. Now we're talking. Well, let's get granular on that yeah. solution. What, sure. what does that look like? I mean, you mentioned sprinting. Mm-hmm. That's something that anyone can do for right. 20 seconds here and there, right? right? And um, in fact, I, I, ever I think since... you should tell your story about sprinting. What about recently. it? Recently. Oh, I, I tried to do way too many sprints, although I've incorporated sprints uh, recently, but in a much more attenuated fashion than the first day I tried to go out and sprint. Yeah. And my legs were sore for about five days yeah, afterward. Yeah, it's, it's and, baby step, everything. And I'm relatively you know, fit, relatively healthy. I, I exercise regularly. I walk a ridiculous amount, but sprinting requires a lot more and my muscles were just fatigued. But what I've noticed is like, as I'm going out for a walk, I can sprint for 20 seconds. I just don't need to do it um, until muscle failure. Right. <laughs> right. Well, that is the key. You're right. That is the key. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's to, to introduce, again, we just come back to baby stepping your way into things. Like yeah. if you haven't done it, the last thing you want to do is try sprinting. What you might want to do is try shuffling, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. for a few weeks. Mm-hmm. Like, and I mean literally shuffling and then the next time out, maybe pick it up a little bit and take about two months and work yourself up to it. Yeah. The key always not getting injured, uh-huh. you know, mm-hmm. but the number one thing initially is, and it's a different shift in your thinking it's to restore um, daily exertion back to the body. Daily exertion is not working out. It's, and if you look at some of the longest lived people in the world, what you find is that they're field workers. Yeah. yeah. Field workers. Like you'll go to Cambodia and someone's 90 years old and they're working an eight hour day in the field pulling stuff. And it's because every day they're exerting the body in a way that a funny thing happens when you bring daily exertion into the body, back to the body you see the body rapidly gets freaky strong really fast. And anyone can prove this anytime. You can do it right now. All you basically have to do is just pick one motion and, and start baby stepping into it and watch what happens in three weeks. Mm-hmm. And, and now this is a different ethos because you're not taking recovery breaks. Right. You know, you're just doing it every day. Yeah. When I was a teenager, I was a farmhand. Oh, okay. As my Great job. Example. Yeah. yeah. And I also played soccer. And I noticed that the couple seasons where I was a farmhand and didn't do a whole lot of extra training besides mm-hmm. um, just our our practices and games, like I I was so fit because you know throwing hay bales around yes for eight hours a day or right. mucking stalls or you know cleaning weeds or mowing the lawn like all of the different things that you have to do when you're 
working in a field or working on a farm like they just they build this functional level of fitness freaky strength that you can't really replicate you can't replicate it by gym with, workouts yeah no yeah yeah and that's good well i was gonna say how, how, how do you how do you take that and obviously your average person who's listening to this some people may be doing that but the average person is either in a cubicle or now we're all working from home apparently and so uh h- how do you take the the office job or the work at home job and incorporate some of these habits you may not be able to do the same exact thing nor would you want to initially but uh, to get fit in a way that isn't gym fit it's every day functionally fit yeah so um start with an integral interval of 20 seconds mm. and that's your only goal wow. and as an ethos go ahead so it's, it's what you used to do i mean what's what you still do yeah. is you you build in these periods of time where you break up your your work day yeah i'll just, I'll just go do some you know, like pull-ups or mm. squats and, yeah. and yeah. sprints now right and yeah yeah and the trick with it is no warm up. That's the trick. Yes. So, so in the modern era, uh, going to the gym is a barrier. Like like getting together and showering and doing the work. You know, everything that goes with going to the gym is now a barrier because it's time it's time constraint. Mm-hmm. I use the analogy in the book of imagine trying to take care of your teeth that way. So you don't brush your teeth anymore. You just try to go to the dentist three times a week. It's not. <laughs> it's not going to work. It's not going <laughs> to. Like you're going to get like three weeks into it. And like, I don't have time for this. Well, it's the same amount of time. If you've like clocked it out, it's the same amount of time to go to the dentist. It is to go to the gym, you know. But when you begin to just like you're working, you get up and you pick one movement and you just start with a 20 second goal. That's it. And then over a period of like three weeks to two months, you begin to integrate two and three of those into your day. And then you add another movement, you know, and maybe you just start with one one repetition. Um. If you're if you're younger and fit, I like to use example pull-ups because um, most people aren't good at pull-ups to start. But it's one of the quickest ways to to prove to yourself how fast this works. You can start. Maybe you can only do one, two, or three. And if you just every day, you know, keep coming back to it, in about three weeks, you're at fifteen and twenty. Yeah. And it's just because the body gets our bodies over thousands of years know how to handle daily exertion and they they just get rapidly strong uh, fast in a way that you can't get from gym training. Yeah. And the trick, though, is every day. That's the trick. Yes. That's the trick. Um, what you'll see as you get older, um, and I'm very old. Um, <laughs> you look great, Joel. <laughs> what you see as you get older is um, you uh, a day goes by where you lost a quarter percent and it ain't coming back. You'll never get that back. Uh, whereas if you're just doing something every day, you didn't lose that quarter percent. Yeah. And then over 10 years, that quarter percent added up to 10%. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's the difference. It's a yeah. very small change over time. Right. Now, with um, well, as you're incorporating these things, also you sort of supplement with mm-hmm. uh, weight training once a week, I, I saw. On average, yeah. Um, I, I love I love weight training. I love the gym. You know, I love training the beach muscles. Um, I just literally for the last 15 years haven't had the time. Yeah. I'm not kidding you. Like, um, I, I started off with a software and if you've never done a software, don't <laughs> like date my life. You know, I spent like, I spent 10 years, like just dealing with programming and, and just, you know, business related stuff where I just, uh, it was overwhelming and I didn't have the time, you know, and I would try, I just could never, I just really just couldn't make it in other than like sad even recently the last uh, two and a half months for me has been so crazy like working crazy 100 hour weeks i haven't had time you know like wow. the, it's a great to get to the gym but i just don't have the time so without daily exertion you know i'd be going downhill fast yeah yeah that makes sense 
Bex, before I wrap this up, I'm going to get back to food in a moment. Is there anything you've got? Any, any other questions you want to ask? Things no, you want to talk about? Not necessarily. <laughs> Joel, um, let, let's let's wrap up. Um, let's talk about food. It, we're, we're, we've already talked a lot about it, but is there anything that we should note you recommend avoiding? What I like about you is you seem to be the most your approach seems to be the most flexible approach uh in order to, to to find you know balance we have to be flexible right and it seems to me that humans we evolved to be able to eat a lot of different things that was sort of the point uh, in in being rather flexible um but are, are there things that you recommend that we avoid in general uh, number one would be fried foods. Okay. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Uh, because fry f- fried foods, those those fats, damage the mitochondria in a way that uh, isn't replicated elsewhere in the universe of foods. And when you look at the effect of fried foods, um, you're taking in damaged fats, and, and those damaged fats, once they reach the mitochondria, um, have a sort of orders of magnitude, um, exponentiated sort of impact on the um, wear and tear on the body. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, very, very damaging to have fried food. Um, I notice it if I, I love fried food, but if I have fried food, I'm super inflamed the next day. I feel it like immediately. Yeah. Uh, with that would be fried food with alcohol. So alcohol has similar effects to fried foods within the mitochondria. And when you combine alcohol with fried foods, um, it's very devastating, okay. very, very devastating to the body. You're creating mitochondrial damage at, you know, you're putting six months of damage on the body in one night. And I love fried foods and alcohol. That's like, what a great trip. There's an Irish restaurant and like, hey, bring the Guinness and that. <laughs> That's my uh, college career fish. right there. Fried, fried cheese. And it wasn't, it's all of ours. Yeah. <laughs> so like in terms of like, you know, things to avoid, yeah, fried food and alcohol uh, together is at the top of the list. I- interesting though, alcohol by itself um, isn't that much of a liability. It's actually, um, it can be highly functional. So like hard liquor by itself is super functional. It, it heats the body up and you'll find when you look at like, um, when you look at drunks or you know alcoholics that just do hard liquor, they're all skinny. Yeah. You know, it's because the alcohol is thermogenic, so it helps make them thin. But they look like Keith Richards; they look super old. Uh-huh. Right. <laughs> and the reason is the mitochondrial damage from the alcohol. Uh-huh. So but we get into some hacks later on where you can hack all that stuff. So that's also a balance thing, though, yeah. right? The Keith Richards is not a is not a balanced man. Uh, although there's probably something there. But it that... was a brilliant flame. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah. Joel, is there, is there anything that we, we missed out on that we I know we, we just scratched the surface here and folks can check out the immunity code, but is there anything that we that we missed out on that we have to wedge in here to this conversation? Uh, probably the most important is the fat loss paradox. Okay, let's talk uh, about it. Yes. Yeah, uh, the fat loss paradox um, um, will wreck you. <laughs> it's the fat loss paradox is the idea that uh, the most likely outcome from shrinking fat cells is weight gain. Mm. And that's that's like a, that's that's a hard one for most people to swallow. Mm-hmm. But what I tried to do in the book was inventory the mechanisms that are associated with that and show you that the most likely outcome long term from uh, shrinking fat cells going on that weight loss program is that you're going to be heavier. Wow. It, it's mechanistically inherent to the process of shrinking fat cells, and it merits a rethink of everything that we've ever done under the aegis or under the umbrella of fat loss and weight loss. So, and you're not saying don't try to lose weight. What you're saying, no, I'm saying you have to, but yeah, there, there's an appropriate way mm-hmm. to do it. Yeah, just we, we just need to, we kind of need to, basically, uh, rethink the way we've been going about this thing here. And so much of it has been under the umbrella or the ethos of like um, fitness as a sort of a bodybuilding pursuit. 
And when we begin to unpack how it actually works, uh, the umbrella is going to get much bigger because it's going to come under the uh, under the umbrella of immunology now. Because mm-hmm. you're going to see like fat and fat loss and body fat, sort of all part of this spectrum of um, mechanistic outcomes that are under the umbrella of immune mechanisms. Mm-hmm. And what you'll see when you we don't have time here to get into it, but when you when you when you shrink fat cells, and then when you look at what happens post shrinking the fat cell, you see all these immune mechanisms kick in to restore what is essentially an injury to the cell mm. by shrinking it. And the idea that fat loss is an injury to the cell, most people first hear that and they're like, what? Well, that makes no sense because they've been schooled to think that losing fat solves the problem. Mm-hmm. But that's not what you see with most people who lose fat. Most right. people who lose fat, if you just track them long enough, um, it, it's worse yeah. long term. So that is something that just needs an entire rethink as a paradigm. So, so if I have a, a friend who has slowly over the course of several decades gained weight yeah. and they come to me or they come to you and they're like, hey, what do you recommend? Because I just heard Joel say that like, if I lose the fat, it's all just gonna come back anyway. Um, that's not the message to get from this. What do you recommend? What steps do they take? Oh, what's the direction in which they travel? Uh, so the, f- the first thing would be there's an order of operations. And the first thing is we don't start with your fat. We start with the gut. Uh, that's the first thing. And that's a little counterintuitive. It's like, wait, don't I want to just lose fat? Mm-hmm. I want to lose my gut. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, you start with the gut. You start with the gut bacteria. And we have to kind of um, do some preconditioning to get the gut in the right place before we start the fat loss. And then during the fat loss process, we have all these checkpoints that we insert to offset all the mechanistic outcomes that happen. A good example is... Um, uh, there's these insertions of gigantic breakfasts during the active fat loss phase. And those are strategically positioned at a certain time of day with a certain ratio of carbs and fats and proteins to, as fat's coming down, to offset the reduction in leptin output secretion from the post-fat loss phase. And then at the end of the fat loss phase, there's this entire period of readjusting tons of levers to make sure that we are knocking out the maintenance phase, uh, genetic activation of things that promote weight regain and all these other things that we kind of have to address that have never really been thought about. Mm. So that's in a nutshell. Yeah. That's sort of the opposite of what we've heard about intermittent fasting, which does get some results, Mm -hmm. but it's it's a short-term result, you're saying. If you're just losing fat from doing one meal a day or something like that, you'll get immediate results from that, but they may not last. Well, it absolutely works. I mean, there's, you can, again, just putting our little map of time out, um, if we map things in the short term, you're going to see all these benefits. And right. it's like, my gosh, this is the greatest thing ever. Everybody should do this. But then as you get into the longer phase and you start to measure things like leptin, the action of leptin is not immediate. It's a long-term hormone. And so what you see long-term is what happened to me in the early 90s with that. I looked fantastic for about four years doing that whole thing. I mean, everybody wanted to know what I was doing. Like, wow, dude, how can I get like that? But then as you got past year four, I was, I just, you know, like if there was an in and out, I needed to be there, Uh you know, like I couldn't stop eating. And that was the long-term uptick in leptin from all of the fasting that I had done. Uh Um, And I I personally see this a lot today. People come to me and they're like, yeah, I've been, you know, doing the fasting thing for three years now and I can't stop eating. What's going on? Uh, So it sounds like you see it too. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And I felt it personally for a while. Yeah. Yeah. Not long, but. (laughs) 
Well, Joe, I want to thank you so much for being here today. I want to encourage folks to check out the Immunity Co. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. Also, Veep Nutrition is your website. We'll put a link to that as well. Is there anywhere else I should send folks? Uh, my Instagram is uh, Real Joel Green. Okay. And, yeah, come by. And, yeah. Nice. Say hi. Yeah, yeah. All right, Sean, we can put a link to that in the show notes as well. Joel, yeah. thank you so much, brother. Thank Appreciate you, you guys so much. It's been this great to awesome. meet you. I really, really had a blast. This yeah. is great. Yeah, yeah. All right, y'all. Love people. Use things. We'll see you next time. The Minimalists.